1: Mike Reddy, thoughts on the SEC stand with an eight-game schedule in 2024? I think it's a disgrace that they are unwilling to play all of their rivals every year. I, I don't know about the rivals part because I don't know enough about the
2: makeup of the eight. So I'm simply saying I, I literally don't know enough to comment on that. I think it's total chicken you-know-what that they're playing eight games. I'm so sick of this. Will we play a tougher conference schedule? No, you don't. The teams in the East definitely don't. No. Right? This whole, oh, we're so much better. Based on what? Oh NFL draft, like look, you guys are constantly having disappointing years recently. Like there was a time seven, eight, nine, ten years ago, where the SEC was just here and everybody else was way down here. I mean, they were just dominant. It's not the case anymore. Yeah, I mean, you're oh, I mean, how many times do we got to watch Ole Miss just go get outclassed in a major bowl game by Baylor or you know a team like that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm I'm so over this whole well, we shouldn't have to play anybody out of conference because of this. Now, there are some teams in the SEC that are more than willing to play teams. They did Georgia did a home-and-home with Notre Dame, right? They played Clemson a lot over the last 10, 15 years, right? And when Clemson was good, they would play. Uh, They've played Boise State back when nobody else outside of Oregon and Washington were willing to play Boise State, right? So – I got I got respect for some of those teams. LSU has had some decent non-conference games. Auburn has mm. been willing to go out to USC and play USC. They've been willing to play some tough teams. They Auburn played Clemson recently. They go to Penn
1: State this year, don't right. they? Auburn? They, well yeah. They,
2: uh yeah, because then they got beat at home by Penn State last year. Yeah. So you know, I am I'm, I'm so over this, but the media allows them to do it. I mean, you're a sixteen team league and you're not even going to play half the teams in your league. What are you what are you a sixteen team league for at this point in time? Like, and how are you going to sit there and tell me that? Because here's the thing that drives me nuts. Well, you know, the strength of, the strength of schedule is, to me, I have a problem with the strength of schedule because the strength of schedule almost kind of like gives you brownie points for being an SEC team. Yeah. You know, like I was looking at the um, strength of schedule on ESPN, on the FPI. And Notre Dame and Texas were the only two non-Big Ten or SEC teams in the top 20. Wow. Right? And partly the, partly the reason that Texas is in the top 20 is why? Because they're playing at Alabama. Yeah. Right. That's what it is. And then, of course, Notre Dame's is is different because they play so many power five teams. But I just get so tired of this whole. Well, you, you're telling me the strength of schedule before we've played a single game is such that the SEC and the Big Ten are this dominant conferences. Well, you know, you're assuming that to be the case. And that's why I think a lot of people have said the, the the expansion to a 12 team playoff is going to be unfair because the SEC and this that and the other. I don't. First of all, I don't think the SEC is going to get six or seven teams in there. I think they're going to get three the Big Ten's going to get three, and then there's going to be six others. And I think what's going to happen in a lot of those is some of these teams are going to get exposed as you're not quite as good as as you actually thought you were, but you're able to sort of get the same matchups year after year after year after year, and you didn't have to go out and play this style of play. Yeah. Alabama's – I don't say Alabama because I don't want to make it seem – Alabama's a phenomenal program. But, like, there's been things they've been able to avoid. They've been able to avoid some of the – conferences that are maybe doing things that could give them some problems back when the the, those conferences were really good like they didn't play a lot of big 12 teams when the big 12 was high octane they did play oklahoma once in a bowl game you remember what happened in that game with trevor knight at quarterback oklahoma worked them in that bowl game this is in the middle of alabama being gracious i think the 2013 season yeah if i remember correctly so you know i my whole thing is sean is is I just think it's ridiculous and absurd that they're a 16 team league is only playing eight regular conference games. And, yeah. and it'd be one thing if you're going to say, Hey, look, we're going to only still play eight, but what we're going to do is we're going to get rid of the FCS game in November. Okay. I don't like it, but okay. At least you're doing that. Right. But they're not even willing to do that. So that extra, so it's not like that ninth game is, you know, them going to play Notre Dame or Oklahoma, or well, I guess yeah. Oklahoma being the legal house state or, Indiana, Illinois, Washington, even Washington State. Where does, the, Savannah when does, State, when does that Bama
1: Bama Notre Dame series starts with? 27? 27
2: and 28, I think 28? is when it is. Yeah. 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 You know, but it's like you're not those aren't the those aren't the thing that those aren't the games you're you're keeping that you're you're adding by not playing a ninth yeah. game. It's yeah. no, you're doing this so you can play Mercer yeah. in Savannah State yeah. and Prairie View. And Jacksonville State and you know pick a FCS school from the southeast, right? Yeah.
1: I mean that's that's what you're doing. And it's how about this? How about right. making Bama and Georgia actually play during the regular season? How about that? Right. Do that. Instead right. of setting up your championship game every year. Right. Make Bama and Georgia actually play each other. Yeah. Michigan and Michigan and Ohio State play right. each other every, every year. year. Every year,
2: Ohio State has to play Michigan, Michigan State, Penn State every single year. Every year, and Michigan has to play Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan State. So yeah, I mean, and, and it's actually the team that they that they cater to the most is is, is Georgia because Alabama isn't. You can't judge – I don't judge Alabama negatively because they don't have to play Georgia every year because they have to still play LSU and Arkansas and AM oh. and m Ole Miss and Mississippi State, and it's still a tough league. But Georgia for the last seven, eight years, the SEC East has been – Have you know, seen was, the schedule this year? It's ridiculous. It's not as bad as Michigan's, but it's bad.
1: I think once they get – they play Ole Miss and Tennessee back-to-back. Like that's – and that's yeah. like the 9th and 16th of November. That's pretty yep. much the season.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is their this is their schedule. They open up with four straight home games. They play UT Martin, <laughs> Ball State, South Carolina, and UAB. Then they play at Auburn. Then home against Kentucky, at Vanderbilt. Bye week. Neutral field against field against Florida, Missouri at home, and then you play at Ole Miss, at Tennessee, at Georgia Tech. So you're talking about Tennessee, you're talking about Georgia doesn't have to play any of the top 3 teams I would I would argue two nope. of the top 3 teams in the no actually yeah the top 3 teams in the west they don't have to play like traditionally speaking they don't have to play Alabama, they don't have to play LSU and they don't have to play Texas A&M, they don't have to play Arkansas like it is actually I'm curious about this. How often do Georgia and LSU play in the regular season? Because I, I know Alabama and Georgia don't play very much.
1: but Georgia and LSU have had some really good games where they have played.
2: So the last time they played in the regular season was 2018. The last time they played, and, and, and that was uh, LSU whooped them in that game. Before that the last time they played in the regular season was 2013 and then before that they didn't play in, oh, so since since Brian Kelly was hired as the head coach at Notre Dame in 2000 at Notre Dame in 2010 Georgia and LSU have played each other twice in the regular season. Mm. Twice. And um and I'm I'm, I'm going to look here real quick cuz I think Georgia has not played Alabama but a couple times either in that stretch. Let me let me go to their Alabama uh, regular season matchups as well so georgia and alabama since 2010 have played in the regular season twice 2015 and 2020 actually before the 2015 game the last time they played in the regular season one was 2008 that's intentional that's absolutely intentional so you you and since brian kelly was hired as the head football coach in notre dame in 2010 13 seasons have passed LSU and Georgia and Alabama have played. Georgia has played Alabama and and to LSU a, a grand total of what four times in the regular season. So you know, yeah, I can't stand it. I, but I, but it's hard for me with some of these other teams. Like how do you, how do you as the Big Ten make that argument when you look at Michigan's non conference? I mean, that's that's as bad, in my opinion. So uh, there was something I saw yesterday too, Sean. I'm gonna find this tweet. I think I, I think it was. I don't remember who it was, but I, said, I wonder. If, I think I might have liked it. Let me see if I if I did. I hope. Yes, here it is. This is a this is a tweet from a guy that covers Iowa football for the Athletic. Team. This is the teams in each conference that are playing ten or more Power Five opponents in 2003. So teams that in your 12 games you're playing 10 or more power five teams the acc which which in this instance he included notre dame 10 out of 15 the big 10 is 13 out of 14 the big 12 is 11 out of 14 the Pac 12 is 10 out of 12 the sec is 2 out of 14
0: oh boy yep Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: Anyway, Look, as long as the way I see it, if Michigan and Ohio State have to play every year, then gosh darn it, Alabama and Georgia should be playing every year. Yeah. Uh, now, I'll, I'll, I'll somewhat.
2: I'll somewhat give Bama a pass. I'm more I'm more issue, My issue is more with Georgia because Alabama does play Tennessee every year in a crossover. Every single year. Facts.
1: And LSU.
2: Well, but they're in the same division. I'm talking about in the crossover.
1: In the crossover, but I'm yes. just saying that's a tough yeah. game. That's a For tough game.
2: Most of my life, Tennessee was a tough game. It was a tough yeah. a, good, a good team. No. Georgia's the one I have the bigger issue with that they don't have like a, a common, I mean they've got in state like in division rivals, Florida, Tennessee, but so does Alabama with LSU and all those other teams. The fact that they don't have a, like you said, okay, so we don't make them play the same team every year, but Mm -hmm. they need to play like one of Alabama, LSU, um, A&M every year, something like that. Like to me, that's, that's something that I, that they should do, but you know, they, we don't see that happen. We see them get a, we see them get, uh, you know, Mississippi state a lot, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. but yeah. It, it, and, and I don't, I don't necessarily, I don't fault Georgia for this because Georgia on their own has shown a willingness to schedule well out of conference. I mean, they play Georgia tech every year. They've scheduled home and homes at Notre Dame. They schedule home and home and homes with Clemson that there it's not Georgia that I'm, that I think that I find it annoying. It's the sec
1: yeah.
2: and the way that they do the schedule.
1: Yeah.
2: So uh, yeah, that's, and I'll, I'll be willing to bet you twenty dollars if you could get Kirby Smart on a on, on a um, sort of a uh, back channel. Well, I don't know if Kirby Smart would feel this way, but yeah, you might. I th- I think that he would even say that. I don't know that that's necessarily good for us. It may be different now that they've won two titles, and he's just like, "Hey, look, let's just get back to the playoff." But I bet you yeah. he would have early in his career, especially, would have said, "Hey, we need those kind of tests to get us ready." I'd, yeah. be, I'd bet you Nick Saban would be more willing to schedule tougher out of conference if he didn't have to play LSU and Arkansas and A and M and Ole Miss every year. I'd be I'd I I'd bet you he would change his out of conference. schedule. I'm not saying I like the way he schedules out of conference, but I'm saying I think he would be willing, more willing to change it if they didn't have to have that gauntlet in the West they're, every year.
1: They're competitors. If you're a competitor, you want to play against good teams. So I agree with you. Yeah, I agree with you.
2: All right, let's get down to uh, some other questions here. We'll mix it up here a little bit. Here's
1: one from Stevie Wonder. Stevie, thoughts on Tommy Ike as a player now. Indy never pushed for him. He stated this. Indy's class that year was Acita, J.D., Jack, and Maris.
2: Uh, look, I, I'd Ida had no problem with them taking Tommy Eikenberg back then. No problem. Uh, I liked Tommy coming out. I didn't think he was going to be an all-Big Ten linebacker like he's become. <laughs> He was a good player. I'd have taken him. I, what I don't like to do, Sean, is I don't like to do hindsight twenty (laughs) twenty stuff when it's when I didn't have that opinion then. Like I'll gladly hammer Notre Dame for stuff that I told you this is what I thought and you should have taken this kid and it turned out to be accurate. Yeah. What I will never do is go back and hammer them for kids I also didn't think were good. You know. So like when when uh, they passed on George Corloftus. I've never hammered Notre Dame for that because I didn't have a problem with them passing on George Corloftus. I didn't think he was going to become what he became. So I'm not going to crush Notre Dame for a bad evaluation when I made a bad evaluation. you know. And same thing at linebacker. I loved Jack Lamb as a player. Loved Jack Lamb. Now, first of all, uh, or excuse me, actually, he's talking about Jack Kaiser. Uh, So I would say going back, that I probably would have taken, I probably would have taken Tommy Eichenberg over J.D. Bertrand. I would have, and I would coming out of high school, I would have. Jack Kaiser is a different player. I actually, liked Jack Kaiser a lot. I'm actually going to try to pull up my rankings right now of of how I had that class ranked, um, just so I can kind of refresh my memory. But I would have taken Osita was always a, a high upside guy. I, I had some issues with Osita as a player. He was very raw. I'm not super surprised he hasn't really panned out at Notre Dame. Um, I think he was more talent than he was necessarily a, a great talent. I'm going see if I can find these classes. Where are they? I got all these files and stuff um, with all these rankings from from players, and I'm trying to find what my old rankings were. So that would be the 19 class. So Maris was my highest ranked linebacker in that class. And so, I mean, I didn't even have O.C. in the top 10 of that class. So I would have been fine. I would have been fine. J.D. was my lowest ranked guy of that class. So I'd have been fine looking back at my grades then if they would have taken Tommy Eichenberg over J.D. Bertrand then. But, um, you know, Maris, I, I love that kid's potential, dude. I loved Maris's potential coming out, Sean
1: you know one of the things that i say all the time as much as we can sit here and grade these these young men and talk about upside there are certain traits of these young men that you just you can't put a a a score on it it's just there was something about tommy eichenberg that we couldn't score that we didn't know was on the inside of him Mm -hmm. like ultimately when you get there you're the best of the best around the country these young men decide their fates. <laughs> they mm-hmm. decide how hard they're gonna how much work they're gonna put in and the type of player they're going to be. And that's something that's outside of our control, whether it's fans or evaluators. And Tommy Eichenberg is just one of those kids. So mm-hmm. where we can sit here and say, you know what, I don't really have him, you know, he didn't check out the way he's played it out at Ohio State. But tip it, man to my cap to the yeah. kid because he has become an absolute great linebacker at Ohio State. And he's gonna play on the next level. I didn't exactly see that yeah. when I was looking at his high school film, but man, kudos to the young yeah. man. And that's I, that's like football. I yeah. It. I liked him. I like I said, I take him over
2: JD. I didn't see a guy that was gonna be an all big Ten linebacker. I didn't see that. I I you know, so I'm not gonna sit there and crush him. like how could you pass on Liam's younger brother and I knew then that he was going to be great. I didn't. I didn't know he was going to be this good back then. So yeah. I'm not going to hammer him for it. But, um, yeah. But, yeah, I, I think Tommy's turned into – he's smart. He's a good athlete too. I mean, that's the thing is, like, yeah, he's so. not just winning with smarts and toughness. He's also a pretty, pretty good athlete. And that's where I thought he was lacking a little bit. I just didn't see that explosiveness. So kudos to him for putting in the work and becoming that kind of player. But I would have definitely taken him, also partly because I just – I thought Liam was a heck of a player, and I like when brothers, you know, get to go to the same school, <laughs> right?
1: John Leahy, thank you for the question. On three reported Caleb Beasley has locked in an official visit for the Ohio State game. It seems to go against ND policy. Is this Beasley hoping for more NIL money, or is it a deep commitment coming? First of all, that
2: visit is well over two months away. Three, I mean, we have all of June, all of July, all of August. And then most of September, so almost four months away from happening. So I'm just going to give you four words, man, let it play out. And that's all I'm going to say on that one. Um, he knows the policy and the policy isn't going to change. So we'll, we'll see, just let it play out. And I, I wanted to bring this up, even though I'm not technically answering it, but I know that a lot of people thought it. So I'll just say, like I said, just let it play out and then we'll, We'll see if he, if he makes it on campus for the, in September, then we'll, we'll have our answer. But remember the kid from uh, Texas last year, the cornerback Calvin Simpson hunt scheduled an official visit to Notre Dame Uh and it got canceled last minute because he was unwilling to decommit. And they said, we're not bringing you up if you're not willing to decommit. So, and he wasn't willing to decommit until he knew where he was going to go. And Notre Dame doesn't do that. So uh, just let it play out, let it play out. All right. Here's a funny one. Uh, Rob Osgood says, for Brian, a quick Scott Satterfield note, he was my quarterback in high school, Hillsborough Orange. Let's just say I was a part of a few o blocks as an O-off O-line tackle. That's awesome. Rob, that's bogus, Rob. That does Rob. not shock me for that's everything bogus, I've ever heard bro. about Scott Satterfield. It does not shock me at all. Oh, man. At all. I just find him and Eli Drinkwitz were probably two guys that I just would have wanted to slap in the face if we went to, if we played high school ball together. They just – they just rubbed me the wrong way, really rubbed me the wrong way. And I like yeah. Satterfield coming out of App State. I thought he did a really nice job. His team's played well. I just never really heard him talk. And then you yeah. listen to him talk at Louisville, and you're like, is this guy literally talking down his team and, like, blaming everyone else for, like, why things are not going good? You're you're <laughs> you're, you're at Louisville,
1: dude. You know what yeah. I mean?
2: Like, if you can't get recruits at Louisville, that's a you problem. That's a you B-
1: problem. <laughs> Man. So
2: it's that dude. Oh,
1: goodness. Niles Morgan, Drew Tranquil, Tavon Coney, Maris Leopold, Jay Nosberry, and Jared Grace. What's your ideal combination in a traditional 4-3 and who would be your ideal defensive tackle tandem in front of them from the past Hmm. 15 years?
2: Of that group, so what's your ideal 4-3 defense? Can I just throw this
1: caveat out there before I... I have heard from several people that played for Notre Dame at the same time. I know as what you're saying. Yep. They said Jared Grace before the injuries. Yep. Was a dude. Yep. He was a dude. So well, you stole my answer. Just keep that I in was... mind because I thought you might go that direction. You stole my
2: right? <laughs> answer. If I could get a healthy Jared Grace, Jared Grace uh-huh. pre-injury, he's my Mike. Uh, Drew Trankles my Will, and Jaden Osbury's my Rover. Cause I think he's prime. Now you could also say I put drew at Rover because he played it, he played it and yeah. then put Tavon at will. I could live with that too. If I can't get pre-injury Jarrett Grace, then I'm putting Tavon at Mike and my, and him and him and Niles would, would rotate there. And then I'd have, I'd have drew at will and I'd have really a three man rotation. There would be my, would be my deal inside my ideal defensive tackle tandem. From the past 15 years, so basically, let's say the Brian Kelly tenure. My ideal tackle tandem is is pretty easy to go with. I'm going to keep Sean Stephon to it as an end for the purpose of this conversation. Okay, it's it's Lewis Nix at nose tackle and Sheldon Day 2015 version of Sheldon Day at three technique. That that is a filthy defensive line, right? Interior defensive line, right there.
1: So you would take. That version of Shell over the final year Jerry Tillery. 100%. Jerry, Jerry Tillery in his last year, though. I the thought Jerry Tillery
2: off. had half of a good season in 2015 or 2018. I thought Jerry was good early. I thought he disappeared disappeared second half of the year. Okay. And, and his numbers back that up. I mean, he had, let's see here, seven and a half tackles for loss through the first five games. He had three in the last eight games. Uh, Same thing with sacks. He had seven sacks in the first five games. He had two against Michigan, one against Ball State, four against Stanford. He had one the rest of the year. So if I could say first half of the season, sure. But the other thing, too, is I like a three technique that's disruptive against the run game even more than I like when they can rush the quarterback. And and Jerry had 10 and a half tackles for loss, but he had like eight sacks. Most of those were pass game production uh Sheldon senior year Sheldon had 15 and a half tackles for loss in 2015 but it only had four sacks I mean that was all right. and Sean what I love about watching that team I would love for you guys this is a lucky lefty conversation to have I would I want to know if I'm right on this I would love for you guys to get Sheldon on your show and say hey man did you just freelance sometimes cuz there'd be times in games where Sheldon would be doing something different than what everybody else was doing and he'd just shoot in the backfield to make a play because I really felt like – because Sheldon was a really smart football player. I really felt like sometimes Sheldon was like, this is a stupid call, and I'm just going to go make a play. Because, like, everybody be slanting this way, and Sheldon would just go this way and make a tackle for loss. Like, I swear he freelanced and just said, oh, this is a stupid call, I'm going to make a play right here. I could be wrong. I don't know that for a fact, but that's just how I felt watching him play, is that sometimes Sheldon would just kind of say, I'm going to do this and go make a play because this call is stupid. So I just because it was Van Gorder's second year, so I could be wrong on that, but that's a lucky lefty podcast question uh for you guys when you get Sheldon on one of these days on the on your show. So, yeah, he would be it.
1: Other oh, defenders were thinking like Sheldon. Offensive players were thinking like Sheldon. Like, yeah, he wasn't alone. Yeah. I just think so Sho one tough. of the ones that
2: had the courage to say, I'm just going to go do this here. Like, one of them was against Temple. He had a big stop against Temple. And if you go back and watch that play, you're like, he wasn't doing what everybody else was doing. <laughs> like, yeah. he, he was yeah. doing his own thing. Yeah. But it worked. It worked. And he was awesome that yeah. year in 2015. Not having him healthy against Ohio State really hurt them in that game. Because, remember, he hurt his foot like the – they were yeah. talking about he might not even play in that game. I think he played, but he was very hobbled. He was clearly not 100%. But, yeah, he was so good that year. And then you give me Big Lou at nose guard, whoever my inside linebackers are, they're going to be running free. They're going to be running free. There's no That's doubt true. about that. Got another one from uh, Indy I
1: Estimate Trucking, Sean. Which of these players did you expect to have a better Indy career? And which was the most productive, in your opinion? Cole Luke, Lowood, Davis, Devin Stuttsdale, Niles Morgan, or Aisha? I think he meant – yeah. Williams. I'm
2: like, yeah. <laughs> Are we talking women's basketball here or something like that? Uh, Well, the most productive, in my opinion, of that group was probably Cole Luke. Him and Niles were the two most productive by far of everybody else. I mean, Niles was a two-year starter, uh, led the team in tackles one year, I believe. Cole Luke had the brilliant 2014 season. And even though he never replicated that year, he still played a ton. So those two... Yeah. Uh, is where I would be. I'll tell you the guy that I thought was going to have a much better career is Ishak, And I still, I still believe that Ishak would have, had he not got suspended, was on the verge of, of really breaking out in his last year. I really think that. And, and cause he, 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 that would, yeah, I would have really liked to have seen what he could have done in 2014. And then there was talk that he might be allowed back in 2015 and I think he would have been really good then, but he was a guy that I thought was going to be a lot better than he was. I, I liked Devin Stuntzel too, and he was pretty good as a freshman. He just didn't want to do the work to continue to be good, and uh, that's what kind of that's what kind of hurt him. Is you know some looked and Sean. It kind of goes to what you talked about earlier. Is there are certain things you just can't can't see on film, and you re- really can't know until you really watch a kid play. But you know Devin Stud still to be the player he was as a freshman, then just really not do a whole lot else after that. You know, there's just just certain things that you just can't see and you can't evaluate when you're when you're watching film. So here's an interesting
1: question from an Ohio State fan, Sean: <laughs> What's the loudest you ever heard Notre Dame Stadium be both for a whole game and for an individual moment?
2: So, I have talked to people like Tim O'Malley and Lou Samoji, who have Tim Priester, they've all said over the years that the Miami game in '88 and the Michigan game in '88 were the two loudest environments that their name is. And that was back when they had a 59,000 seat stadium. For me, the two loudest games that I remember were both in uh, one was in, they were both in 2015, actually. Uh, and that was um, Texas in the opener, was rocking. And part of the reason was they were, remember, they had just started construction. And the way that things were, it was one of those years where it would funnel actually the noise back in instead of it escaping out. So it it kind of amped it up, not intentionally, but amped it up a little bit. And then that USC game was pretty loud too. Clemson this year was was in that conversation. Clemson this year was really loud and wild. It was, I mean, just from, from the moment that that block kick happened, I mean, even, even before that, though, but, like, when Cam Hart was making big plays and, and Benjamin Morrison was making stops, I mean, they just were out fit. Even though, like, we talk about the Clemson or the, the Notre Dame offense and how physical they were, the Notre Dame defense came out and they were physical that game. I mean, their corners were making big hits. Remember when the tight end tried to run over Benjamin Morrison and he just took it and took him down? It's like, hey, you can run me over. You're 240
1: pounds, but you're going down and we're getting the ball back. Yeah, I love Marcus Freeman's comment to Benjamin Morrison when he came to the sidelines yeah. like, hey, you need to get low, bro. <laughs> <Just> get low." <laughs> but he
2: took it, right? He was yeah. he was like, I'm coming at you. Yeah. Cam Hart was great in the first quarter of that game. I mean, he yeah. was coming up, blowing up runs, forcing them to hold him. And then once the block kick happened, it was just like it just – I remember when Drew Pine scored that little quarterback keep. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could feel the stadium rocking, and you can't often feel that at Notre Dame Stadium in the press box. You really can't. It's, it's not one of those older stadiums where, like, the press box vibrates whenever the crowd gets excited. It's not like that. You can feel it. Uh, that, was the, that was in the conversation with those two 2015 games for me. Michigan 2018 was pretty loud in the first half. It just didn't stay that way for the whole game. Like, when Brandon threw, hit uh, Fink on that bomb, that place was insane. So we am talking about for an individual moment yeah. when he threw that post route, Chris Fink outplayed those two Michigan defenders. That Notre Dame stadium went crazy. It went nuts. Um, Will Fuller's touchdown against Dory Jackson was about as loud as a moment as I've ever seen, and it was one of those crescendo moments, Sean, because it was quiet in the stadium. You had just watched Cody Kester go right down the field and, and score touchdown. Yeah. You had and, and and um and if you remember in twenty fifteen, that was coming off the year that USC had just obliterated Notre Dame at the end of the year. You know, go like, oh, here we go again. They're just they're gonna murder us just like they did last year. And because that was a the game they won what 49-14, and that was with Sarkeesian calling off the dogs at the end of the game. They could have hung right. a 70 spot on Notre Dame the game if they wanted to. Easy. I mean, they really could have. And um so they they you come out, they go right down the field. And they sent they do a motion and you see it the snap, you see Fuller go or run his post right, it's real quiet. And when Deshaun throws it deep, right? So you see Deshaun, and you just hear this like slow crescendo of like because then as soon as Deshaun throws it, they all see freaking Fuller just smoked the dory off the line. Yeah. And so you hear this crescendo. And the moment that Will Fuller caught it, I mean that place went nuts. I mean, absolutely nuts. Uh, so that was another very loud moment. I was actually fortunate enough to be outside for that moment because I was up top on the – this is in the old press box. They used to let me video the games back then so I could watch them, like, do break, do my breakdowns, which they stopped doing. But uh, my wife was – Angela was the one doing the the video. So I was actually up there checking on her to make sure because there was some issue with it. And so I was actually outside for that one. I mean, that that the stadium was vibrating when he caught that ball. I mean, it was pretty awesome. So those are some of my individual moments, Sean. How about you? I know you've been to a few games over the years. What are some that stand out for you?
3: Um, It got
1: pretty loud at Soldier Field in 2012 when they beat Miami. It was a pretty loud environment. I would say the – I was there for 2012 – What's it not that Stanford game? Which Stanford game was I there for? Not 12.
2: What's that? Was it at Stanford or home game? No, it was Stanford? a home game. Home was game it the 14 game or the touchdown at the end of the game?
1: Yeah, it was the 14 game. The game was pretty, but most of my games have been via I can tell you the loudest I ever thought coming through the television. Like what it felt like. Yo, that is insane. That 2012 Stanford game seemed like an electric atmosphere, especially for the goal line. Mm -hmm. It seemed like the crowd was into it. It was raining. That seemed like something that would have been very loud. Uh, I agree with everyone that said 88, Michigan and and Miami. The Mm -hmm. Miami game felt, you felt the energy. Coming through the TV, it was like, yo, this is incredible. Because you didn't know what you were going to get, right? Because you didn't know Notre Dame was going to come out and physically just impose their will. Again, this is Miami, man. So to see that, and energy that was built, of course, the T-shirt and everything that was surrounding that. But I remember the 93 Florida State game. That had to be one of the loudest moments. Because I'm sitting there in my college dorm watching this with some friends of mine that were Florida State fans. And I am talking trash the entire time, the entire time. And I'm talking trash. You know how you talk trash, but you have a fondness? Mm-hmm. Like, I really liked tra- if Charlie Ward was playing, yes. I was watching him play. Yes. I love Charlie Ward. Kez McCorvey.
2: Yeah, that was a Absolute. fun Derek Brooks Absolute. was a great line. That was a fun team Absolute. to watch, except Absolute. that weekend.
1: Except that weekend.
2: Except that weekend. And I liked Bobby Bowden. I had a lot of respect for Bobby Bowden, too. Yeah. Because Florida State was one of those teams that would go play anybody, anywhere, anyplace, anytime. You know, I mean they, they weren't afraid to play people like Steve Springer was. I mean, I mean like Florida, like Florida did. So yeah. yes. Yeah.
1: It, it look, let me tell you
2: something. The state Charlie yeah. Ward was ahead of his time. Oh, absolutely. Like way ahead of his time. Absolutely. Like Charlie Ward, Charlie Ward in, is, is like what today's quarterbacks are. Mm-hmm. Like he was Bryce Young slash, you know, those type of guys way before those guys were even born. You know, like he was he was a he was a quarterback from a, a different era playing in an era, in that era, in an era where I don't think like his numbers were would have been so much better in a modern offense. And they're pretty good then. But the, yeah, I don't know if you've seen if
1: yet. you've seen his documentary. He actually has, he has a documentary out. I didn't see that. No. Where, yeah, where he talks about his evaluation coming back from the NFL and his evaluation is pretty much what made him choose basketball. Yeah, he wanted to play in the NFL. He he would have been a first round pick right now. Today, oh yes, oh the type of quarterback he was, absolutely. Dude, if
2: Christian Ponders a first round pick, Charlie Ward's number one overall pick, yes, Yes. because back then it was so much of they were looking for a prototype, six three, two
1: hundred twenty, big arms in the pocket.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because like you, the only guys that were doing things in the NFL running the ball like Charlie was were like Steve Young was an anomaly, but at that time I think Steve had just kind of taken over the Niners. Yeah they hadn't won the Super Bowl yet. Nope. And it was like Randall Cunningham and John Elway and they were unicorns, but teams weren't looking for that. I mean, you didn't watch John Elway say, Hey, we, we need to find the next John Elway. Cause you knew like there isn't one, you know what I mean? You were trying to find the next Dan Marino, the next Phil Sims, the next, you know, six, four, six, five, six, three, as you said, big arm pocket, seven step drop quarterback that Jim, cause there was a lot of running shoots back then. So you want mm-hmm. guys quick, get rid of the ball quickly. And Charlie was throwing the ball down the field and, you know all that kind of stuff. So yeah, um, yeah, he would be a. It would be viewed much differently in today's in today's NFL, in my yeah, opinion. Absolutely. Could you imagine what his numbers would have been like? Like, because he would have he would have gone like, let's just say, probably played for like a a Ryan Day or Lincoln Riley in today's era. His numbers would be ridiculous. Insane. Well, couldn't be Notre Dame though. <laughs> couldn't be Notre Dame though. All right, let's get. We got a
1: two-parter here from one of our OGs, Notre Dame two one six four. So I'm watching a few Notre Dame games from last year. And it seems to me that we were much better at run blocking on the o line than pass blocking. Am I seeing it that way? Because the run blocking is that good, or do we have a problem pass blocking? What do the stats suggest?
2: Well, you know, I don't. I don't know. I think. Hmm. I'm trying to think think, how to say this
1: correctly. I think the run blocking got better as the season went on.
2: I think the pass blocking was a mess early because... So there's always a lot of different reasons why the pass game isn't working. (laughs) Right? Uh, Protection-wise. And it's not always because your offensive line is not protecting. I think there was communication problems early like Ohio State, the Ohio State just ran two different inside blitz like delay blitzes that Notre Dame just wasn't prepared for and didn't know how to react to. Uh, so obviously that was um that was a problem. I mean that that was something but those weren't things that really hurt them later in the year. For example, uh, I think that when you look at Notre Dame's past pro last year, I think they ranked like 40th in the nation in sacks allowed. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of difference between them and, and the top 30 teams, it's two three sacks. A lot of those happened early when they were still figuring some things out. I also think there were things that happened where the offensive line was the checks weren't good. The the protection checks from the quarterback weren't correct. I think Marcus Freeman has talked about this a little bit last year where, you know, the quarterback's got to set certain things and, and, and have an idea. And then a lot of other times there were sacks that happened last year. I can think of three or four off the top of my head where it's like, that's the quarterback's dude. Right. I mean, like, you know what your protection is. We're, we're running a mic protection and we're, we're going to the mic here. The running back is here to here. If they bring off somebody off the edge here, quarterback, that's on you. You got to have the answer for that. We don't have anyone to count for that guy. Now it may not be a thing where they're brought more guys that we can block. That's not always what a blitz is where you just overall bring more guys than we have, but you know that we're going to slide our protection here. So you bring an extra guy off of here and because teams get tendency tendencies for pass protection as well. And it's it's your job to say, hey, look, you can't always be a team where if the back is whatever direction the back is, it tells us where the protection where the protection is going. It can't be that way. You know, you've got to be able to mix it up. But sometimes teams get it right and they take a guess and they say, hey, we we think there's a greater tendency that when the back is here and a three by one that they're, they're running the slide here or they're running a mic protection there or whatever the case may be. If there's no tight end, they're going to run the slide. If there is a tight end, they may run a mic protection, whatever the case may be. And so then you bring pressures off of where you know that they don't have the numbers to account for it. Well, it's up to the quarterback to know who we can't block. And then with that guy comes, you know you've got to get the ball out somewhere. And and there were times where that didn't happen either. So I, I didn't think either group was very good early. I will say that I think the run game got going sooner than the pass game, but I think the pass protection aspect of it got better as the season went on and uh, was was good. I, again, I I think some of the issues that happened later in the year uh, when it comes to some protection breakdowns were more about the quarterbacks than they were about
1: uh, – And I think, like you said, second half of Navy is perfect example. Right. Like Navy just made the decision we're going to bring more than they have. Yep. And we don't think the quarterback – can see it pre-snap and figure it out and know where to go. That's that's what it is. We don't think he can do it, and they were right. Mm-hmm. They were right, and people were wondering, like, "Oh, why didn't the left tackle do this? Or why didn't the right tackle do this?" Man, that blitzed seven. Well, that's not his six. job. He right. can't
2: do that because if he does that, then they run the you know, and that's part of good scheme from a defense. Correct.
1: Right. That's not his and- guy. That's
2: not his gap.
1: In today's modern football, if you blitz one more than they have, then guess what? More than likely, you have an athletic quarterback that can make a play, extend the play, and then get something out of it. Yeah. It happens every Saturday, all the time. So yep. you're right.
2: Yep. Now, that doesn't mean that there weren't plays where, like there were some in Blake Fisher had some inconsistency in pass pro. Mm-hmm. I thought the guards had a little bit of inconsistency in pass pro, but a lot of times it was due to just like you have you have. I thought the running backs were a little inconsistent early, but they were better late in the year. Uh, yeah. A lot of times, it, you know, I think some of the issues were more court, more were
1: more quarterback related yeah. than they were. Um, like Blake Fisher had a bad had a bad game against Stanford. He just had a bad game. yeah yeah. It just was his best game, and he had a good season. That Stanford game was just. Not his yep, best show. Definitely not.
2: <laughs> definitely not his day. And that's going to be a key for him. I'm going to have an article coming out on him probably tomorrow. Uh, I'm going through these player profiles and such, and hit, hit that one for him will be
1: about just the consistency. Yeah. You know, that's going to be the key for him. Brandon Plinzer why do you think the lack of patience in recruiting from the BK era has transferred over to Marcus Freeman's tenure? Is it something to do with Notre Dame as an institution or strategy?
2: I think I think I, I don't agree with the premise, to be completely honest with you. Brandon, I think your biggest different your biggest problem with Notre Dame right now is not that. It's not a lack of patience. It's just you have different and I'm not gonna say wrong, because you could be right. You and Notre Dame have very different evaluations of certain players. I think you're gonna look at Teddy Rizak and Bodie Cahoon and say they 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 didn't have patience. And now I, I know f- I know I've had these conversations with people that would would be in the know. It's not about that. Teddy Rizak was not a guy they took because they got nervous. They took him because when they went, when they got, when they were able to see workouts, and and I mean, you're talking about a kid that they were able to get verified four five two time on, that visited campus and measured in at six three and a half with thirty three inch arms and ran a four five two, and. Tests out extremely well, and they say this kid's got an incredibly high ceiling. We want to get on him before anybody else does. That's not about a lack of patience. That's about an evaluation that you happen to disagree with, which is fine. I'm not, again, I'm not saying who's right or wrong. I'm just saying uh, Bodie Cahoon is not a kid that they took because they lacked patience to wait for Kingston or Chris Cole. They love Bodie Cahoon. Again, another kid with a verified four, five, 40 time, that's still learning the game of football. They're betting on the ceiling in a year where I don't think that they really love the linebacker class, which I don't either. Uh, I just think it's more of an evaluation difference of opinion. Cole Mullins is another example. You're not that high on Cole Mullins. Totally fine. I think Cole Mullins is a dude, and I think he's got a ton of upside, and Notre Dame loves that kid. So we may say, hey, well, why not wait for Malachi Williams? Well, why do you assume that they like him more than Cole Mullins? I don't think that they do. I don't think that they they necessarily view certain guys as better that you might think are better, which is again, Brandon. I'm not coming down on you. So I, I think I don't think it's a lack of patience, Brandon. As I just think that they're making evaluations that you don't agree with. And we'll find out soon. And I, Brandon, I do know this enough about you. I know that you would love to be wrong about the ones that you're concerned about. And and I feel that way with certain like Sean Silviano's a kid. I, I just I don't get excited about him as others do. I hope they're right. I hope I'm wrong. You know, I, I, I do. There's certain kids that they've taken uh, this year. I've said this, I'm not as high on Carson Hobbs as Mike Mickens is, but I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt because he's earned it. He's shown that he knows quarterback ev- about cornerback evaluation more than I do in his track work. So, and I hope he's right. Cause I love Carson Hobbs as a kid. I mean, he's awesome. Uh, so I, I mean, I'll, I'll say that I, I think that, but it's not a, to me, Sean, it's not a lack of patience. It's a lack of it's – a, it's a difference of opinion and valuation. Like the Anthony Knapp one, that, again, not a lack of patience, just a difference of opinion and valuation. That's one of those ones where you talk about a coach pounding on the table for a kid, that was Joe Rudolph pounding on the table for Anthony Knapp. Now, he could be right, he could be wrong. We don't know. But it wasn't a patience thing. Uh, Aeneas Williams was not a patience thing. That kid came to their camp and dominated And then the film is incredible. I mean, you know, again, you could talk about level of football, but the film was good. But then he comes to Irish Invasion last year and is outstanding. Uh, Receiver, Isaiah Canyon was not a lack of patience. They see a dude with five-star upside. So do I. They loved Micah Gilbert from the beginning. Not a lack of patience. They just love that kid. So I think the difference here, Brandon, for for you is I don't think it's an impatience problem. It's just an evaluation problem. If if what you say is correct, if what Brandon you think about players is accurate, then the issue will be more about this staff is not good at evaluating players. It won't be so much that they're pay- impatient like Brian Kelly's tenure was, because we've seen that. And if they were impatient, they would have already filled Justin Scott's spot, or they wouldn't have pushed on Wayful out and would have made him the three technique, and then you know given up on Justin Scott. Or, you know, there's certain like there's guys in this class now, Sean. They would have given up on Micah Gilbert way earlier than this staff did. And taken somebody else. <laughs> yeah. You know? Uh, so that's the thing is for me, is I just I don't think they lack patience. I think that there's just there's just some evaluation differences of opinion with the staff compared to what you think, which is again, please don't take that, Brandon, as me saying you're wrong. You could end up being right but there's just some difference of opinion from an evaluation standpoint on, on that one.
1: City 13, Notre Dame's membership into the AAU is a big deal. In my opinion, they jump schools like NC state, Virginia tech who do more research with fed dollars. Do you think this foretells Notre Dame's move to the big 10 or just an academic move? I think this is an academic move.
2: Uh, I, I, you know, Look, here's why I don't think it's a Big Ten thing. Everybody keeps saying, well, this is, you know, a lot of the Big Ten teams are in there. And that's been one of the issues with Notre Dame in the past is th- those are different type of institutions in Notre Dame, far more research-oriented. I mean, Michigan State is basically like an agricultural school, more so than like a a, a liberal arts school. I mean, there's an aspect to it, but it's a big agricultural school. Virginia Tech is, is you know, is a little different that way. This is an academic thing. Look, here's the deal. If Notre Dame wanted to be in the Big Ten before nine, early 90s, like a year ago, like, guys, when they started expansion and they went and got USC and UCLA, does anyone here think that if Notre Dame would have said, hey, yeah, we want to come, that they would have said, no, you have to become an AAU member first? No, they wouldn't have. Th- that's about football. and And so you may say, well, hey, Notre Dame – is now in the AAU so they may be more willing to join the Big 10. I don't think that's the case either. I just I don't I don't think those two things have anything to do with each other in my opinion. Now, does that mean Notre Dame's never going to join the Big 10? Not saying that either. I'm just saying I think this is completely independent of that. That's my opinion on it and you know, I just don't see how that's going to have any impact on conference decisions for Notre Dame. It, it has it's not sports related at all. This AAU thing is not at all Related to athletics, it's purely an academic research type of situation.